Welcome again to Permaculture Tonight. We're here already at episode three. We only have one guest tonight. It's Curtis Stone of Green City Acres. He is redefining the term successful farmer, changing the face of farming today. This is the urban farmer that made $50,000 in one year on a quarter of an acre in British Columbia using a bike. It's a long one, so it'll be just his interview this episode. No other updates. All right, enjoy it. Acres. I've done this for six years, going on six years. Um, as a business, it's worked really well. It operates um, on very low capital. Um, it's been quite profitable, um, and I like doing it. It's fun. Most of my, my, my customers are restaurants, I sell at the farmer's market every Saturday, and uh, yeah, it's led to many other things. Like It's led to um, me writing a book. Um, lecturing. I've been traveling all over the U.S. talking about this stuff. Um, it's gone in a direction that I never thought it would. I just, when I first started this, all I wanted to do was just make a living doing something I thought was cool and, you know, contributing something positive to the community and may, maybe the world at large as far as an idea, but I didn't really think that it would go to where it has. Um, but yeah, yeah, it's been a blast. Um, I'm busier than I've ever been, which is insane, but um, I love what I do, so it's it's not, you know, I sleep well every night knowing that, I, that, I, that I'm doing all I can and that I, that I like doing it, so that's kind of where I'm at right now. That's awesome. So it seems like you figured out like a niche, like you figured it out so well that the niche started connecting you to other niches, like, like you fulfilled... Like that, like your system, because in another podcast in uh, Permaculture Voices, you talk about how you kind of figured out that if you keep it small and beautiful, and if you do things the right way, you can increase money without increasing your overhead and yeah. the amount of people you're involving. So, like the amount of moving parts, like a machine, the company is the same way with with employees. So. So it's like you erase the overhead, and I feel like that that in and of itself is what so many businesses need. They need to go back to the bottom line and be like, how can I think about this in a completely radical way, redesigning the systems behind it? Totally, totally. Um, you know, and it's not to say that there isn't overhead, but, you know, I have a pretty good margin, like... Um, Know, well over 50%. So it's, um, you know, the costs are, are very low compared to most businesses. Um, uh, but, you know, it's farming. It's it's, it's hard work, but it, it gets easier the, the better you get at it, that's for sure. I mean, I remember just slogging it out. Like, when I first started, man, God, I, I did so many things that were just so unnecessary. Huh. And, it's kind of funny. It's like it's like you you hear that that saying like pick your battles. Like that's one thing I've really learned over time. Even this year, I, I'm still learning at this. Like constantly, I'm constantly trying new things and really observing and documenting my observations. And that's one thing that's really allowed me to accelerate my learning process. Because I think a lot of people go through business 
or even life where they just like will make the same mistakes over and over and over again and i won't say that um I'm like some kind of guru as far as that goes, as far as my personal life. I've definitely done some things like, you know, personally, like any human would, you know, made mistakes and all that. Um, but as far as my business is concerned, I think I've been pretty good at like note taking and, and, and recording data and uh, leveraging that data to improve the system. And that's one thing that's really helped me. Even this year, like I'm able to work 30 hours on the farm a week and accomplish more than I did when I was working 80 hours on the farm just like say three years ago that's so amazing. that's that's pretty exciting because I can be so much more effective with my work um, you know it's not so much it's being efficient is good but being effective is really important where did you learn uh, all these organizational skills because I feel like I learned some things in school but I mean, the, the, my writing skills really started being in a three-person class with a retired headmaster of a school who was a professor of English. You know what I mean? Yeah, and, yeah. And I, 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 got, I gained so much from these kind of close associations with people who were organized mentally who could put it on paper, and then I could see it and imitate it and then have absorb it to a certain degree and organize myself and then put out organized material. I don't... So that's how I learned. How did you learn to do this? Because you are meticulous. When I think of the word meticulous, I think of you. <laughs> I know it's it's funny because like I have not always been that way. I, you know, believe it or not, Matt, I've gone, I've changed a lot in the last six years since I've done this, and even more so in the last couple years. What changed um, you? Well, um, seeking mentors was huge. Um, never. Like, mentors, really. Like, constantly looking to other people in whatever field. Like, honestly, I have I have uh, mentors that are finance people. I have mentors, some mentors that are farmers. Uh, most of the mentors I've sought out and have worked with over the years have been just, like, entrepreneurs. Um, not necessarily farm-related or... Because I didn't have, like, a really consistent father figure in my life I mean I'm just kind of like reflecting on this now as we speak about it in a way kind of self-analyzing this is that um, I was often seeking male role models because I grew up hating my dad for many years now I'm actually very close with my dad my dad was is the opposite of my mom like you know a sort of ideology he's he's very libertarian um, my mom's very socialist and so I have a lot more in common with my dad now but but as I got a little older, I actually learned a lot from my dad because he was a small business person, like entrepreneur, not like super successful entrepreneur, but did many different types of businesses and was sort of a jack of all trades. And so I, uh, I modeled him uh, for many years. And his, his whole thing was just like, you know, really sticking to your integrity. And, and you know, when you, sh when you shake someone's hand and you make a deal, you, you f always follow up. And, and so he really kind of hammered some of these principles into my head at a young age that I really didn't really learn until now or, you know, when wow. I started my business. So it was like their differences became your strength. That's amazing. Yeah, totally. They did. And they, they did the juxtaposition and their outlooks really became my strengths. And, and, um, you know, it's part of the reason why I'm so critical of the left now is because I was in it for so long and I feel like I was sort of lied to for so long. And um, personally, I don't really 
Well, no, I, I can't say I don't care about politics. I don't care about like the politics of the day, like who's getting elected or whatnot. But I do find it interesting to engage. And you and I, you know, we are often on the same side of things on these in these Facebook debates that we sometimes get into, and I often wonder why I bother. But um, you know, I find it interesting because there's so much bullshit out there that people think and believe and there's just so much entitlement for us in the in north america and it's like there's all these things that we blame on other people but so much of that blame we could we could accept ourselves but nobody wants to take responsibility today and i think for where i am in this niche is i'm a farmer and i'm here I want to help change the image of what it means to be a farmer because I think that the image has been just like, or not just the image, but the farmer has been completely destroyed. Oh, it's a cartoon. The farmer, you know, um, today, like most, most farmers are living on the government dole. Like they're living on subsidies. And I, I saw this one video it actually made me nauseous, but it was this young woman and this video was called Farmers for Food Stamps. And it was this young woman who was probably like like totally able-bodied and, you know, like um, relatively articulate. And, and she's made this video on YouTube about how farmers should get food stamps so that they can pay for their infrastructure. And I'm like, how, how like disgusting and, and like degrading is that? Like for farmers, they used to be the most resilient um, independent people are now like asking for subsidies, and it's just, because it's become so common because nobody thinks you can make a living at farming. That we, it's just like it's just become so pathetic, and I, I think this is why I partly am always kind of voicing these like anarcho-capitalist or libertarian-esque views. Is just like, come on, guys, farmers are supposed to be that. We're supposed to be the people that go into an area and make happen because we've got the skills and and the work ethic and and we can construct all these great things but today it's just it's sad where where, where farming is gone well farmers are and always have been the backbone of civilization and i think that since we've gotten away from that we i mean really what we've done is we've marginalized all these people uh through welfare and subsidies we've We've created a system where we've taken away their power, their independence, right? And so democracy is based upon independence, representation of our, 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 our citizen power, right? And so it's like then that follows suit, and then everyone's upset at the end of the day that they don't have any rights. And then the whole yeah, left-right no. thing, I think they're contextual. I really actually think everyone's right, and that's why everyone argues so much, but it's contextual. So it's like being able to, like, help someone and to be able to serve someone freely of your own voluntary, you know, charity and love for them and a local community, there's nothing better. And you can really, yeah, yeah. Right. And so that's what like traditionally religion was, you know, and totally. And and, and actually, you know, even for myself, like consider myself an atheist, even though I don't really like, I don't really feel the need to like myself, but just, just so you understand the context of where I'm coming from, it's totally. like, I actually respect religions more than ever because that I, I've, I've discovered just from traveling in the U.S. so much is that um, religious people who often um, identify more on the right than on the left are the most generous people. 
And, and this is even statistically correct, actually, in, in, in the U.S. I'm not sure what it is in Canada. But, is it tithing? You know. Is it because they're paying their tithing? I don't know. I think it's just it's just that people in religious communities identify in that community and, and they build a resilience in that community. And so they take responsibility for that community and they want to help that community. Whereas people who just like worship the state and they just think the welfare state should do everything, they're actually less generous. Well, they, they can't. They actually don't give as much. And like, they can't they see the working mechanisms. The right, give more to charity than anybody else. Because they can see the result. And the problem when then everything goes into the amount of like this amorphous like cloud of the state is we don't see where anything goes. You see it go in and you see something come out. And whatever that comes out is tainted. And yeah, so, totally. And so what we need to do is we need to keep things small enough that they can be actually connected to the people that they are trying to help. So instead of like giving to a charity, it's like, well, let's figure out what we can do with that money to help people in our local area. Let's find some people in need and figure out what their the root of the problem is, what the foundation of their need is, and help them figure it out. And maybe that money could go towards, you know, helping them start a business. Exactly. As a, I just, as a micro know, I'm just sick of the whole um, thing of like, oh, well, well, for one, I don't, I'm starting to like really analyze language more. And, and even, mm. the, even the word we, it's just like, what, who is we? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like everybody's always like, Oh well, how do we help the poor? Or how? Well, it's like who the hell's we? Well, in my case, it's you know? the, the uh, my church, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints. I'm a Mormon, yeah. <laughs> so when I say we, I mean like the families in our region will reach out to the other families in our church and will help um, the people that we know that need help in our network. Yeah, yeah. And 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 that and like the crazy thing is is everyone could be forming these voluntary associations and becoming more resilient. It doesn't ha- it, you you don't have to base it around I mean you could base it around whatever you want really. Um but it doesn't have to be around religion, it doesn't have to be around politics. It can be around gardening. It can be around Hopefully. Um, well, and it's just it's just a community of people in some geographical area mm-hmm. that identify with themselves. And I think the one thing that we've really lost today um, that I just don't see in the greater society is people just aren't connected to each other. And there's many reasons for that. But I think the primary reason is just people don't need each other the same way they used to. This is something that I'm writing a lot about in my book, actually, is that... Um, you know, back in the okay, so in the 1900s, 41 percent of people in the the work in the labor force in the United States were farmers. 41 percent, and and then in the 1930s it was 21.5 percent, and then it steadily declined until 2000. In the last census data that that I had from the from USDA stuff is that in 2002, 1.9 percent of people were farmers, and it's interesting because as you go through that whole that um, loss of people in agriculture, so has we, so have we lost the sense of community. And I think there's a correlation there. And that because people don't do things like we used to, and, and to some to some extent, there's been some benefit to that. Like there's some, there has been some benefit to centralization of productivity and whatnot. I mean, we definitely benefit from it in our day to day lives, no question about it. But um, the fact that people can live on the same street as somebody for 20 years and never know their neighbor's name is crazy to me. It's and probably bad for I, people because too. Because people don't, they don't need each other the way they used to. Like, you know, you, when my grandfather was a kid, 
they had their family had a, a family farm that was a mixed farm you know it was a relatively diversified farm and um they got a lot of the things that they needed on a day-to-day basis from the people in their area. And so I think there was a higher, I believe that there was a higher level of acceptance uh, and even tolerance within those communities when they needed people. Whereas today, when you don't need to know your neighbors, because you can get everything from Walmart, then you don't, you have less empathy for them because you don't really get to interact them with on interact with them in a, in a real way. I also think connected to this because I'm an English teacher, you know, um, the, the people can't uh, write well enough to show warmth. They can't write well enough online to show empathy. And when they get upset, they're shutting down parts of their brain. So what happens is they tend to like the the, the conversations go like into these bottlenecks of emotion and intelligence and and I mean at the end of the day you don't you don't get anywhere online with people because they can't communicate. I mean eighty percent of our yes. communication is our bodies. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Well that's funny you say that my, my girlfriend actually lectures and teaches body language and she says the exact same thing. Wow. Uh, and it's it's funny actually yeah what, what you said there um and that that's actually often a that's referred to as sophism when you know you're in a you're in an intellectual debate or conversation with someone you're you're, you're exchanging ideas and then one person comes back with something like that immediately is it um gives an emotional response from the person and that totally detracts away from the actual conversation because today People get so offended over everything because we've got this, you know, politically political correctness is like is like the thing of the day, right? You you can't say certain things, even if they're facts and they're based on empirical data, you can't say them because they're politically incorrect. And so people I, I think what, what's happened is that we've totally come full circle to what George Or Orwell wrote about in 1984, where you have the new speak, like the there's been this new language created, not so much in the literal sense that was in 1984 where they've actually changed the definition of of words and and whatnot, even though we do that for sure. But we can't have the same kinds of conversations that people would have had, like the forefathers in the United States would have had, because everybody gets so damn offended over everything. It's just like, how can you have a conversation about anything real when everybody gets offended and so it's like everybody's always like oh never talk about religion and politics and you know and money and it's like those are the only things i want to talk about those are the only things that are interesting to me i don't want to have trite conversations about nothing i might as well just stay home you know let's have some like engaging conversations and today it's like people just everything's offensive you know and it's i think it's sad because it just it just makes the world keep ticking on the way it is and it's just like if we want to change things like we need to have these awkward and uncomfortable conversations from time to time yeah we definitely have to wake people up and i think that uh examples like your own are the way that we can move forward and the way that all of us can find our own path because i mean realistically we need thousands of you but we also need millions of other people working as hard and as smart as you are and yeah, we need, I think we need to have people starting to recognize the individual. Like today, the, this whole collectivist thing has just gone so far where it's just like, you know, everything is like, 
let's compartmentalize everybody and everything. And it just seems like the left on the on the political spectrum seems to just do it more and more and more and more. And it, it, it just seems, I don't know if it's like politically motivated or what it but is, but it's the, like everything is about what you are. You know, I, I was on Jack Spierko's show a couple weeks ago and we talked a little bit about that. We're just like, you know, you are white privilege or you are a black victim or you are a gay victim you are a woman it's like it's like put put people in these categories and it's just like i have nothing to do why 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 do i get lumped in the sum of white men it's like i've got nothing to do with that right you know my own individual i am curtis stone i'm not white man i am curtis stone it's like (laughs) i don't believe in this whole thing of like the group or the, the group. average, like, right? The average. I was talking. All right. So this is the same thing with school grades. How are you an average of your English grade and your math grade? That's crazy. You're not the two things mixed together. Or like, if you're a math genius, you're not like a C plus person because like you're not good at English. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, public schools. Oh my God. You know, Matt. I mean, you know, you and I have gotten into a little bit of. Uh, I just before, resigned. I mean, it, it, it seriously took. It's it's taken me. God, when did I start thinking? You know, I, I'm just thinking of like when my actual like red. I had sort of like a matrix moment, like the a red take the red pill moment, and I started to just unwind all this nonsense that has been hammered into my head for so long. And I think it's taken me at least ten years to unwind all the crap that was hammered into my head in public school. And I, I'm still discovering it today. I'm still pulling back this, these layers. I, I kind of refer to, to it as like an onion. And all the, there's like layers of bullshit on the onion. And, and, and a lot of it is, most of it is based on fear. And you just pull back these layers and you go deeper and deeper and deeper into it, like going down a rabbit hole. And, oh my God, every, you know, everything in public school was... Oh, so detrimental. I mean, I'm just thinking about, you know, how great human potential actually is. Because I actually, I have a very optimistic view of human beings and what we're capable of because I've seen people do absolutely incredible things um, and even having experiences myself that have changed my whole view on the world. And it's just like the public school system just keeps you down. It just keeps these layers of fear in your head. And the one thing that drives me crazy is that human beings constantly put themselves beneath other people. And I see it all the time. Like even when even when I go like for one we always do it to politicians because we just we just assume them for everything oh oh they're the, they're gonna take care of it and that's because people don't want to take responsibility for themselves but it's also we just kind of put ourselves beneath people and and, I, and people say it to me all the time and it drives me crazy like I do lectures or teach a workshop and you know somebody I swear every time I've done a lecture I've done hundreds of them now and uh, somebody always gets up and says okay, you know, this is really cool what you've shown us, Curtis, but, like, what about for the average person? Like, what, 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 is, is this really applicable to the average person? And I'm just like, oh, my God, you need to stop calling yourself an average person. You need to stop putting yourself in a box and saying that, oh, I can't do that. And it's just all this, like, fear-based mentality that's just hammered into people's heads. And it's all based on collectivist thinking that, like, Oh, I am part of this group, XYZ. I'm a black person, so that means that I'm associated with all black people. Or I'm a white person, I'm associated with all white people. It's garbage. It's total nonsense. Like you are an individual, you have incredible power, and you 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 need to 
to see that. And once you do, and once you get past these like truncated compartmentalizations, the human being is, is capable of so many incredible things. But we first have to free them. All these people are refugees of freedom. So what you have is that like they literally are afraid, they're confused, and most of them don't have a real education because, you know, right. And so we have these like mob mentalities controlling elements, but they're not really controlling us because they're being influenced, right? Um, and so I really think that we need to figure out a way to provide examples on, like, I mean, like Will Allen, like growing power. Like, mm-hmm. people need to have actual examples on the ground. And that's why it's so critical that you're doing what you're doing. Um, I talked to Neil Speckman last time. Uh, yeah. And w- these examples are the only things that we have. Well, I think, and frankly, I think it's all we need, personally. I, I agree. I, I agree. I don't think. Like, and I, I'm with you on everything you're saying, but I mean, what else can we do as individuals besides doing what we do and doing it really well? Um, my call to people is to say, especially to, to farmers that are getting into this, is not only do you have to do this well, but you have to do it so well that you also make a load of money at it. Yeah. I want to see our group, I want to see people become very successful and then we can leverage those things to do all kinds of other things um we have to stop this like victim mentality stuff we need to stop thinking oh you know it's the 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 0.001 control everything and there's nothing i can do screw that mentality get out there and start doing stuff and that's what we need to do like I, i don't know if there's much else we can do because i don't know if I believe in even the concept of the masses anymore, like um, I, I, I'm starting to see more and more that there is no masses, there are no groups. These are just constructs that are created to keep people compartmentalized, and and I think it's all nonsense. I mean, you know, even I'd like to just the get into the, even the it, word of permaculture in a in a way because I find that word itself has two elements that I think are kind of limiting in expanding what the things that you and I are into to a wider audience. And, and, and so you break that word down, permanent and culture. And so for one, permanent is a misleading word. When, when we understand like, you know, there's many people have so many different definitions of permaculture. It's almost become like a word like social justice. It's like 20 people will have 20 definitions for it. But you know, I think, you know, probably people that are listening to our audience have, to what we're, what we're going to talk about here is like relative understanding what permaculture is, um, is that if you're, if you have something that's based on nature and using nature as a model, nothing is permanent. Not even mountains are permanent. Planets aren't permanent. Galaxies aren't permanent. Nothing is permanent. The only thing that is constant in the world is change. So I find like, that word there is kind of misleading. And the other part of the word that I find misleading is culture. Um, Terrence McKenna does this great lecture called Culture is Not Your Friend. He talks about how culture 
is just this other construct of compartmentalization. It's just a thing that people identify with is, okay, this is my culture. This is how things are done. This is how things are done in my culture. So I must follow this path. And it's this other like sort of collectivist thinking that I think totally hinders people. Cause like in recent years, I've done quite a bit of traveling around North America uh, you know, Mexico and California, and I, and what I've seen as a constant thread, and I, I heard Terrence McKenna say this like years ago, but really started to see it in the day-to-day world, is that the people that actually leave their culture, the people that step outside the box of their culture are the people that are the most successful. So it's like culture is like, I don't want anything to do with culture. Well, you're talking about edge species, and that's only because they've doubled their culture when they become an edge species. Or triple their culture when they become an edge species. Uh, what do you mean by that? So, like, when you leave your culture, you become exotic in the other cultures you interact with. You become an edge species because you're interacting with... And plus, if we go extreme, like, language is a form of collectivism because we're, we're agreeing in the social contract that these symbols mean these things and these sounds are attached to those symbols, you know? So, I think that there's... In, in culture, I think that it's a, a social agreement rather than a dictate. And I think the dictate part is relatively new, actually, if you look at history. Um, well, yeah, maybe the dictate part, but definitely, like, people, they choose to be part of their, of a particular culture, right? Like, there's, the, it, it's dictated in some cases, like, maybe, perhaps, if you yeah, it's ideal. Saudi Arabia. You know, when you're, you're a woman living in Saudi Arabia, that your culture is definitely dictated on you right. violently. Um, for us in North America, though, I mean, we definitely, I, I, I think we probably have the highest quality of living um, than anywhere else on the planet, really. Um, but we still, people choose to follow the culture because of fear that they don't, they don't want to step outside of the culture. They don't want to rattle the boat, you know, like. People don't want to necessarily be the black sheep, but it's often the black sheep that are the most successful people in the world. Very true, because they're edge species. Yeah, they step outside of this like box, and they know? can interface between huge amounts of like information and peoples and resources. Exactly, and I think you know it's 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 part of what has got me to where I am is that I've interacted with all kinds of different people and sought mentors and 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 used their experiences to simulate and build off those experiences so I don't have to trial and error and make the same failures they they've made. So speaking to that, what 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 do we need to do next to really scale up because I mean the reality is we really need to have urban farm and i and i know you've got this book coming out is there a, a tour you're going to go on where you're going to go uh to like all the major cities and i i well none, none of the none of the u.s stuff is booked I, the only thing that's booked right now is i got a one month tour in new zealand with um jean martin fortier who's a, a small farmer and author on the same publishing house that my book's coming out on uh, him and I will be doing a tour in New Zealand. But, yeah, I, the plan is to just hit the road hard and be out there. Um, yeah, I think I think it's coming, Matt. I mean, there's never been a time in history where there's been less farmers on the planet. So dangerous. Uh, and and, and they, are ex- they are almost extinct. Like, the average age of a farmer in North America is 60 years old. And there's not enough people replacing them. So 
the price point's going to have to change. I mean, also the, the the drought in California seems like a perfect storm in a way, because that's going to accelerate food prices like crazy. Uh, we're already seeing food prices. I mean, right now here it's 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 a very exciting time in my area because. In the province of British Columbia, we get 75% of our produce from from the San Joaquin Valley in California, like literally. Well, that's the end. In the the 1970s, we used to produce most of it ourselves. Um, But the prices are going up like crazy. And right now, it's exciting for me, just even as a business person in farming, is that my prices are actually cheaper than the stuff coming off the trucks from California. And it should be. And that's right. It should be. And, and that, that's good because that's real. That's like kind of real economics kind of coming into play here. Um, and uh, it's good. Yeah, it's, it's creating a lot of opportunities. And I don't think there's ever been a better time in history to get into agriculture. If you can get step outside of the box and think, um, find a niche and um, look at the opportunities that exist, give up on the idea of owning land, give up on the idea of having to have big infrastructure and um, even turning it into a million dollar operation, you can do incredible things. I mean, I, ne- I never got into farming um, thinking I'd make millions out of it. And I don't, I don't necessarily think my type of farming is, is that kind of farming per se. People often ask me, well, how scalable is that? It's like, well, I don't, you know, I don't know. Like, I, I know for one, I have scaled my operation uh, to two and a half acres once, and my margins definitely went down considerably. So the, the bigger you go, the, 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 the further the margins go down, for sure. There's definitely but, a lesson there. I mean, that's a, that's huge. I think that ever this talk of scaling up with everything is, oh, yeah. whether it's government, whether it's bureaucracy, or whether it's agriculture, oh, totally. always leads to systematic failure. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's 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 sort of. I often wonder if it is a cultural thing that basically comes as a result of, of central banking policies. Is that we've had this for like the last hundred years? Yeah, hundred years. There's just this concept that things need to constantly grow. And I, you know, when, I, when I've thought about that over years, I've kind of gone through different uh, possibilities there. But the one thing that really I lead back to or go back to the most is that our money's constantly being devalued. So that's, isn't, is that not why we need to have constant growth? Because if you don't have constant growth, you lose your economic energy to inflation. And so you have to keep growing just to keep up with the Joneses, basically. And so this is this cultural thing that's been sort of violently imposed by government and central banking policies. And so if we didn't have that, then why would why would you need to keep growing your business if that wasn't your ambition? I mean, personally, I'm the kind of person that does like to grow. I mean, I'm just, I'm a very ambitious entrepreneur. And I have many projects on the go. That's just the kind of person I am. But not everybody's like that. A lot of people are really happy to just raise a good family and have lots of time with their kids and and whatnot. And, and one day I might do that myself too, but I, I don't have kids right now. And so I'm just like, I'm just ready to just to give her. So I, I like the the growth thing, but not why 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 does everybody have to do that? I mean, if you can make eighty five thousand or a hundred thousand dollars on a small farm for a full time job employing, you know, yourself and another person, what the hell's wrong with that? I, that's that's what that's more than a lot of lawyers are making in the United States today. Yeah, I think so, the problem with with America is everything appears a certain way and then there's a reality underneath it. And I think that um, it appears like it's an all-or-nothing thing. So you either have money or you, like, don't. And so 
you, you end up with this expectation built in that you need to appear like you have money once you have money. And so when people feel like they've hit a certain number, they start spending it. And I mean, yeah. And oh, it, absolutely. And, I mean, that's, yeah, they, they, just to, to give the image that they have money. I mean, it's classic in my hometown here. It's like, People call, uh, we, we call, there's the, the people that live up on the hills, like we call them mortgage poor. It's like they have these huge houses and nice cars, but they have no money. They just there's want no the good example. looking rich, you know. There's, yeah, there's no good example of someone being like the middle class person. There's no, like you said, there's no average. There's no middle class person who's like, hi, I'm the middle, you know. All, all, like all we see in America is like people who are, who are basically like lower middle class. And who are like almost almost making money, and then going into debt to appear like they have money, and then people who have money. <laughs> totally. And so I, it's, it's it's crazy. Yeah. But, you know, I, I'm I'm very very optimistic of of the way things are going, even though I see governments doing insane things. Like like is our it, government right now in Canada um, is doing unbelievable things like he's basically following the sort of george bush patriot act style type thing there was this this like quasi terrorist attack in the in the house of commons um a year ago yeah and, i remember uh you know a politician got shot and um you know of course lots of conspiracy theories about that but but they have you know they're bringing down the hammer on all of these crazy things like why are, they can tap your phone without a warrant they can search your house without a warrant they can arrest you without a warrant um they're doing all this crazy stuff um but you know it's funny like i have never in my life been happier because i no longer care about what the government does because I don't think I, I truly believe that it's not sustainable for them. It's like I think we are at the we're approaching the end of the empire. And when you look at history and what empires have gone through, there's always this like there's this 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 graph. It's like always this growth, this exponential growth thing where before the collapse the government just is massively trying to just grab onto power, expand, you know, get in involved in all kinds of military inventions, interventions, and it's just like, I just, I don't worry about it because I am building so much resilience in my own personal life and in my community and even my international community, knowing people like you and and uh, there's so many other great people I've connected with going down to conferences like Permaculture Voices that, um, man, I see so much potential in the network of people that are being built up. And I, I think one thing that's so cool with the advent of the Internet, you know, the fact that we're talking the way we are right now uh, via the Internet is that people, I don't know if people are necessarily identifying this in this terminology, but, but we're starting to see a nation of people being built on their ideas and not their nationality. Like, the idea of the nation state is kind of dwindling because what the hell do I have in common with Canadians? Like, what is a Canadian? Yeah. What is Canada? It's a line on a map, right? How, how, what's different about me than a person who's 100 kilometers south of the U.S. border. We're in the same bioregion. Are we that different? It exposes than, than the illusion. That's on the other side of my country. Like, you know, this, the fact that, you know, I, I would consider you more of a countryman than somebody in my own country. 
because of our ideas that we share. Right. A country's an illusion. Absolutely, it's an illusion. And, and the Internet is allowing us to really connect and build these communities with people all over the world that share the same ideas as us. And it's, it's, it's an exciting time. And I think that's the only way that we're going to make sense and create structures that actually work is if we voluntary, voluntarily associate like that. I, I just think that the, the complexity of our world is beyond the scope of a large government. It's beyond the scope of pre-planning on a global scale. And that's why we have all these atrocities. We have all these like huge mistakes happening. We have all these horrible decisions being made by politicians and generals and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. And I think if we just can just take it all down and just push that all to the side and focus on what's exact, what's in front of us, what, yes. what our neighbors' needs are. Totally. And, you know, it's not, you know, the, 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 the original permaculture ethos, the, the think globally, act locally, man, that, that, that is like, that is gold. That is absolute gold. And I don't even think Bill Mollison invented that concept. I'm, I'm, I'm sure that that's been said or been spun in a different way from other people for many years because I don't, I don't think there's anything groundbreaking there. Yeah. But it's total truth. It's Absolutely. Total truth. Um, because the cool thing about today is it's amazing what can happen when you really build up your community. It's amazing what will happen internationally. And like, I never had any intentions. Um, or even aspirations of going around and doing lecture circuits and going down to Mexico and hang, hanging out with farmers down there. And I, I never thought, I just never even imagined that that would have been a possibility. But just by focusing on my community and serving the needs in my community, building a sustainable business for myself, it's incredible where those things can lead, partly because of the technology of today. You know, it's kind of like when I was a musician, like I, that was kind of like my former lifestyle or my life was that from the time I was 20 till almost 30, I was a touring musician and I lived in Montreal. And What instrument? Uh, all kinds of stuff. I'm more of like a producer. I play most rhythm section instruments like bass, drums, and guitars, and keys. Um, but anyways, one thing that was is nice. sort of like a common universal truth in, in the music circle is that the best way to build a following is to really make your local following as happening and as huge as possible because that will spill over into other communities. And, and today with the Internet, it's even more so because like if you're a band and you can you can host a really rock and show and fill a venue with like a couple hundred people and you can film that say for example and put it on youtube and people see a video with a packed venue and you're rocking out and you're playing good songs people will think you're a rock star everywhere and so so it can really spill over and i think like the the power of the individual online today is has been like exploded because how much impact one person can have through social media through websites like like marketing websites like even like ebay like how you know how comments and and things like that can can rate people and what the power of the individual has online is incredible so it's like the, this whole idea of think globally act locally is, is amazing but when you think about that 
through through like applying that stuff in your local area and then how it can be magnified through the power of the internet it's like mind-blowing like boom it's crazy how much a person how much impact a person can actually have absolutely well thank you so much curtis this is the longest interview we've ever done and i think you've earned your own show Yeah, I really appreciate it. You have such a, a sharp mind, uh, and you know exactly what you want to say. And I really appreciate everything you said. And I would love to have you back on, maybe uh, maybe you, when you start your next tour, or you start your American tour, or maybe your next yeah, project totally. or something. Totally. Um, yeah, if people want more info about my stuff too, they can go, uh, my farm's website is greencityacres.com. They can find me on Facebook, uh, Green City Acres. I have an online um, course that is basically a how to do everything with urban farming. I've been working on content for it for two and a half years. Uh, it's like a full multimedia experience. It's called ProfitableUrbanFarming.com. And then my I have my book, The Urban Farmer, coming out on New Society Publishers in November. I think it's November 2nd as a release date in the U.S. Nice. I'll be sure to get it. Cool. All right. Thanks, Curtis. Thanks, brother. Have a good night. You too. Peace. Well, that's our show. Thank you for listening. I hope we've given you some things to think about and maybe inspired you to make some changes in your own life for the better. Let's use permaculture to make our lives better by helping each other become more self-reliant. Tune in next time for more permaculture tonight. Thank you and good night. (laughs) 